our Dharma talk this morning, Sunday the 19th of November, as titled, After the Final No, There Comes a Yes. And it's a line from uh, a Wallace Stevens poem, a great um, American writer, the 20th century. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to the title later on. Uh, I thought for this, this talk, uh, be good to address uh, what's happening in Gaza, conflict there, how to do that. And when, I, when I decided on this topic, a um, number of stories uh, and teachings suddenly sort of came up and I quickly um, wrote down a structure and then I thought, oh, well, I've got, a, I've got enough hooks to, <laughs> to hang a Dharma talk on. And so I'll begin with a story that's been with me for a long time. Uh, since the mid-1990s, when uh, Amala Roshi and I were in training at the Rochester Zen Center. It was during the time of the Bosnian War, uh, when Serbian and Croatian troops were fighting each other after the breakup of Yugoslavia. Like now, it was a very violent time. Um, and, and the conflict would morph and get worse as the years went on and uh, with ethnic cleansing by, um, by the Serbians of whole Muslim villages. And this, uh, this story um, concerns some Croatian soldiers who were huddled in a bunker when they were joined by a comrade who had been listening to a shortwave radio. And he was shaking when he, when he arrived. He was shaking and he was white. He was very pale. And they asked him uh, what was the matter. Had some of their friends been killed in, in a shelling? And all he could say was, Oh my God, you should hear what's happening in Rwanda. Oh my God, you should hear what's happening in Rwanda. And he was referring to the Rwandan genocide that was taking place at the same time in Africa with the Tutsi minority being massacred by the Hutu militias. Sort of has a, sort of has sort of like, <laughs> sort of a, gr a grim humor to it. Um, you know, oh my God, you should hear what's happening in Rwanda. There's something moving in the soldiers shocked response to a tragedy unfolding in another part of the world, even as he and his companions face their own life and death situation. So um, I find his, his empathy really, really commendable. Thinking of others in, in his own uh, terrible situation. In our New Year's prayer, uh, which we will be reciting as part of our New Year's celebrations at the end of December, uh, it's a great ceremony. We see the, the New Year in with sittings and, 
and um, noise making and the New Year's prayer. And we have these lines, my brother in Palestine, my sister in Palestine, my brother in Israel, my sister in Israel. And this year, these lines will have a, an added poignancy. As one writer has mentioned, when we acknowledge our pain for the world, we are affirming our interconnectedness with others, especially those who are experiencing the horrors of war. A few weeks ago, just a personal note, a few weeks ago during a, docs, a Zoom doxan with my teacher, Bowden Roshi, I found myself um, beginning to cry. So tears were coming up. Hamas had just committed its murders in Israel and the Israeli government was preparing to retaliate at the time. And I knew that this retaliation would be brutal and unrelenting. By way of a response, my teacher reminded me, this too will pass. Basic Buddhist teaching, this too will pass. This is, from a Buddhist perspective, this is our understanding that all conditioned things have a beginning, a middle, and an end. However, However, it doesn't assuage the pain one feels when faced with suffering on a vast scale. The gods of war must have their blood, I remind myself. The gods of war must have their blood. In recent history, since the end of World War II, Cycles of war and destruction have been occurring in the Middle East, Syria, Lebanon, Sudan, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq. Many of these conflicts are ongoing. And of course, we still have the ongoing situation in the Ukraine. And yet, we cannot turn away from what is happening today in Gaza. There's a wonderful haiku by Issa, one of the great haiku poets, 18th century. Uh, Issa lived a life of poverty. Uh, he, his wife died, a number of his children died. And yet he wrote verses of, um, of great empathy with all life. Uh, he wrote a number of verses on insects, um, being one with insects, mosquitoes, fleas, uh, as well as animals, frogs. And there's this very famous haiku he wrote on the death of his three-year-old daughter, Sato, who he was particularly attached to, goes like this. This world of Jew is a world of Jew, and yet, and yet. This world of Jew 
is a world of Jew, and yet, and yet. Isa was a practitioner of Pure Land Buddhism, and the first two lines express the fundamental Buddhist teaching of impermanence, that everything in this life is fleeting and evanescent. For centuries before him, in China and Japan, the image of dew evaporating at dawn epitomized the sense of impermanence. This world of dew is a world of dew. But then, Isa hesitates and writes the third line, and yet, and yet. With this third line, we return to the realm of the human, to suffering and loss, and our acknowledgement of suffering and loss. And for Isa, the heart-rendering loss of his young daughter. Uh, John Tarrant, uh, a contemporary Zen teacher, writes, the Mahayana is built out of that and yet, and yet. We never quite give up the personal, since if we did, there would be nothing at all. We recognize how unsubstantial things are, and yet our sorrow has its own integrity. There is a kind of loyalty that we owe to the world's pain and loveliness, and to the truth that pain and loveliness cannot be disentangled. We recognize how insubstantial things are, and yet our sorrow has its own integrity. What next came up for me is a, is a verse from the Dhammapada, uh, an early collection of uh, basic Buddhist teachings in verse. And this is the verse at the beginning of the Dhammapada. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made up of our thoughts. If a person acts or speaks with an evil thought, pain follows them as the wheel follows the foot of the ox that draws the carriage. If a person speaks or acts with an evil thought, pain follows them. And this verse points to the inevitability of karma, of cause and effect. And the workings of karma are no more clearly demonstrated than in the seemingly unstoppable juggernaut of war. Hamas knew what would be the result of the atrocities it committed in Israel. It knew that Israel would retaliate with the utmost force and that the people of Gaza would suffer. In turn, by a ceaseless bombardment of Gaza and the growing number of civilian deaths, 
Israel is sowing new seeds of violence and in doing so, creating a new generation of terrorists. The only way to stop the juggernaut of war is to declare an immediate ceasefire, release the Israeli hostages, and open corridors of aid to relieve the suffering of the people of Gaza. Yes, you can say the situation is complex, but the solution is, is simple. There must be peace. Uh, for me, uh, the only side to be on is the side of peace. <clears throat> In regards to this unstoppable juggernaut of war, there's a story from the Palisutas. It goes like this. This is a, a, a problematic story. It's a really interesting one. Uh, it's, it's got something of a koan about it. I'll just, I'll just tell the story. Just a reminder that um, the Buddha, when he was prince, when he was uh, Prince Shakyamuni, um, he was the, the son of a king in northern India, and he came from a warrior, the warrior caste, from the Shakya clan. The story goes like this. King Virudaka of Koshala, infuriated by a racist insult at the hands of the Shakyas, sent an army to destroy Kapilavasu, the capital of the Shakya kingdom. Hearing of this, the Buddha set himself down under a dead tree in the path of the army. Knowing that the Indian custom at that time required an invading army to give up its attack if it encountered a holy man in the course of its advance. Coming upon the seated Buddha, King Virudaka ordered his troops to halt and asked, Why do you sit under this dead tree rather than in the shade of a living one? The Buddha calmly replied, My clan, the Shakya, is like this dead tree, alluding to the impending destruction that awaited his people. At this, King Virudaka, obedient to ancient custom, ordered his army back to Koshala. <clears throat> Still bristling from the insult, King Virudaka invaded a second time and again found the Buddha seated under the same tree. Once again, the king ordered a retreat. Then he invaded a third time, only to have a retreat, only to have to retreat yet a third time, his way blocked by the holy man. When word reached the Buddha that preparations were underway for yet a fourth invasion, however, he ignored the pleas of his disciples and refused to intervene. As a result, 
the entire Shakya clan was slaughtered and the city of Kapilavasu destroyed. Hmm. So it is a difficult account, especially from our, our modern perspective. We want the Buddha to continue to sit under the dead tree and thereby prevent the bloodshed. We want a sort of happy ending. We want um, King Virudaka to, to heed the Buddha's teaching of nonviolence, to give up his plans of war, for diplomatic relations to be established between the two kingdoms, for the um, Shaka clan to apologize for the insult given to King Virudaka. We want diplomatic relationships to be established between the two clans and for harmony to be the result. But that didn't happen. In those days, there was no United Nations or any external pressure that could be exerted on King Virudaka to prevent him from destroying the Shakya clan. What we can say is that the Buddha could see into the complex workings of karma, and he knew that in the end, nothing could halt the army of King Virudaka. It was a dire situation as dire as the situation now unfolding in Gaza. We all want a humane outcome. We all want the suffering to cease. But for the time being, it continues. Um, feels like we're being hammered by the first noble truth that there is suffering. I'd like to um, shift gears and take up a koan that gives us a, cosmos, a cosmic perspective. It's case 29 in the Blue Cliff Record. Uh, it's Daisui's, it goes along with everything else. Um, the recent film, Oppenheimer, it's a really great film about the development of the atomic bomb. General Groves expresses fear that the intense heat generated by a nuclear explosion could ignite the nitrogen in the atmosphere and bring about the end of the world. This is when the atomic bomb was about to be tested in the New Mexican desert. And Oppenheimer assures him that this is highly improbable. Still, since that time, uh, the vision of a nuclear holocaust has haunted us. So this, this is the, the koan. You'll see how it relates. A monk asked Daizui, and that's the Japanese name for the Chinese teacher, Dasui, when the conflagration at the end of the Kalpa sweeps through and the great cosmos is destroyed, I wonder, is this one destroyed or not?
Daiswi said, it will be destroyed. The monk said, will it be gone with everything else? Daiswi said, it will be gone with everything else. The uh, conflagration at the end of the Kalpa. A Kalpa is actually an Indian term that um, Buddhism adopted. is an unimaginably long period of time. Eon is probably the closest English equivalent. According to descriptions in Chinese text, a Kalpa is the time it takes for a block of stone measuring 40 meters on each side to be leveled to the ground when an angel descends from heaven once every hundred years and brushes the stone with her feathered cape. Indian cosmology says that the universe goes through four great kalpas in a constantly reoccurring cycle. The arising of the universe, the continuation of the universe, the demise of the universe, and the destruction of the universe. The monk is referring to the fourth kalpa, a period of utter chaos when everything is destroyed. So the, mask, the monk asks, is this one destroyed? He's thinking of himself, but more importantly, he's thinking of our true nature, our Buddha nature. Is Buddha nature destroyed along with everything else? And this question shows his attachment He's attached to the concept of true nature. And he he's probably hasn't realized it for himself. He hasn't realized that this true self is no self. Therefore, Daisui replies, yes, it goes along with everything else. Yamada Roshi, a contemporary uh, 20th century Japanese teacher, says that with this response, Daisui delivers a crushing blow to the monk. Yasutani Roshi, the teacher of both Yamada Roshi and Roshi Kaplo, said only a few decades after the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that if we were caught up in an ex atomic explosion, there would be no alternative but to become completely one with the explosion. So, it goes along with everything else. However, there's a follow-up story that's interesting. This monk refused to accept Daisui's answer and he went on a long journey to another Zen teacher Totsi Datong and related his conversation with Daisui. Totsi lit incense and bowed to the figure of the Buddha saying the ancient Buddha of West River has appeared. This is where Daisui lived. So he's referring to Daisui as the ancient Buddha. Then Totsi said to the monk, you should go back there quickly and atone for your mistake. 
you should see into the teachings you were given by, by your, your teacher. And the monk went back to see Daswi. But when he finally arrived at the temple, Daiswi had already died. So his original teacher died. So the monk went all the way back, took a long journey back to see Totsi. But Totsi, in the meantime, had also passed away. So that you have the monk being given a real experience of impermanence. Both of the teachers that he could have learned from had passed away. However, there's, however, and yet, and yet, there's a corrective, an important corrective to this koan. And we have a, this teaching from Zen master Keizan, who, Japanese teacher who's Dogen's grandson in the Dharma. This is by way of a verse. It's a really beautiful verse. It goes like this. Even though the myriad things are extinguished. There remains something that is not extinguished. Even though everything is gone, there is something that is not exhausted. We can take these words to heart. Even though the myriad things are extinguished, there remains something that is not extinguished. And this is where the title of our talk comes from. As I mentioned, it's the opening lines from a poem by Wallace Stevens, The Well-Dressed Man with a Beard. It's a rather, um, rather obscure poem, but it has these two great opening lines. After the final no, there comes a yes, and on that yes, the future world depends. Sticking with the universe, arguably, arguably, the most existentially frightening things in the universe are black holes. Uh, black holes are formed when massive stars collapse at the end of their life cycle. And after a black hole is formed, it can grow by absorbing mass from its surroundings. So it can suck everything towards its center. Nothing can escape. Light can't escape. And once if you passed over the horizon of a black hole, you wouldn't be able to escape. You're drawn down towards its center where it has been suggested that at the extinction of the star, both time and space are obliterated. Decades ago, a um, number of scientists didn't believe in, the, in black holes, but they're being proved to exist. Everyone all the scientific community um, acknowledges black holes. And they've even been photographed. 
some are billions of years old from the very formation of the universe. However, um, and yet, and yet, in his new book, Whitehalls, okay, Whitehalls, the great theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli puts forward the theory that at the very moment of complete extinction in a black hole, a leap occurs, time is reversed, and you exit via a white hole and return to the universe. This is truly the yes that comes after the final no. Carlo Rovelli is an Italian theoretical physicist. He's, a, um, he's acknowledged as one of the greatest contemporary theoretical physicists. He's done a number of books that are really great. If you're like me and if you um, find anything scientific, especially quantum physics, daunting, he expounds it in a really clear way. He's a great writer. He parallels, he takes you in the book, uh, White Holes, he takes you into, the, into a black hole and out the other end via, via the white hole. And parallel, parallel, par, par, parallel to that, he um, talks about Dante, the great Italian writer, 13th century, and his journey down into Inferno, if you like, down to a black hole, and then up through purgatory and into paradise, paradiso. So he uses that as a complementary scheme, if you like, to a descent into a black hole. So um, to conclude our Dharma talk, I'd like to read some passages from White Holes. So he writes, in this book, I try to describe black holes, which we now see in the heavens, in their hundreds, the best I can. What happens at the edge of these strange stars, their horizon, where time appears to slow until it stops and space seems to end? And then, inside, down, all the way down into the deepest inner regions, where time and space melt, where time seems to reverse its direction, where white holes are born. The hypothesis of black holes can transform into white. I do not know if it is correct. I do not even know if white holes actually exist. I know a great deal about black holes. We see them, but no one has seen a white hole. Yet. And um, he and other physicists have been exploring the, the, the concept of white holes for the last 15 years. He goes on, if you follow me, I'll take you to the edge of a black hole's horizon. We shall enter it, go down to the bottom. We shall cross through and emerge into a white hole where time is reversed, then go up and out until we see the stars again. Beyond the horizon of a black hole, 
where not even light can escape. We have even less chance than light in doing so. However many powerful rocket engines we might have taken with us, there is now no way of avoiding the fall towards the center. At any given moment, the interior of a black hole can be imagined as this funnel. The older the black hole, the more elongated its interior. The interior of a very old black hole might even be millions of light years in length. Sort of we're in the realm of Indian cosmology, a black hole that might be millions of light years in length. He continues, Long time for us does not mean long time for the star. Down there at the bottom, time has slowed tremendously. Outside, millions of years have passed, while down there, just a few fractions of a second. The star is still falling at the bottom of the long tunnel that is stretching and narrowing because its time, because in its time, no more than fractions of a second has passed. And further, in a black hole, you can enter but not leave. In a white hole, on the contrary, you can exit but not enter. So anything that enters a black hole can cross the grey zone and pass into the white hole and come out again. And exiting a white hole, he writes, we fly to the other time of space and time. We fly to the other side of space and time. And finally, last passage, in a white hole, everything that falls then flies upward. In the end, everything that is entered comes out entirely from the white horizon and returns to seeing the sun and the other stars. Seeing the sun and the other stars is a quote from Dante's Paradiso. Um, so to end, uh, just return to the quote from Zen Master Keizan. Even though the myriad things are extinguished, there remains something that is not extinguished. Even though everything is gone, there is something that is not exhausted. Uh, we have... Um, we have a little time left, so there, are there any comments or questions um, being raised by this talk? Thinking about the Buddha sitting on the dead tree. Okay. Okay, we'll leave it at there and recite the four vows. All beings 
without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot down the gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great of will. I vow to attain all these without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot darkness beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of the I vow to attain all these Honey is away for a few days. I think she'll be back on Wednesday. She's in Christchurch. Uh, that's all I've got. Any other announcements? The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service, or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.